Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 233, Dr. James R. Gordon on the Extra Calvinisticum, Part 1. Dr. James R. Gordon holds a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the University of Michigan in Flint. He also earned a Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he earned his Ph.D. in Biblical and Theological Studies from Wheaton College. He's a visiting assistant professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. He's also taught at North Central College and at Trinity International University. He's here with us today to talk about his book, The Holy One in Our Midst, an essay on the flesh of Christ. This is a monograph-length treatment of a topic called the Extra Calvinisticum. In this episode, we'll find out what that is and how that relates to understanding Chalcedonian Christology. Dr. Gordon, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks, Dale. I appreciate you having me. So, Dr. Gordon, why don't you tell us a little bit about your life, what sort of Christian you are, and how you came to be interested in modern debates about the fine points of incarnation. Sure. Well, um, my wife and I and my two sons live in Wheaton, Illinois. We attend an Anglican church here in Wheaton, and I teach philosophy at Wheaton College. As far as how I became interested in the Incarnation, when I began my education in undergraduate school, I took philosophy courses and was really interested in Christian epistemology and what it meant to have religious beliefs as a Christian. And then I went to seminary, and as I took biblical studies courses and languages and began studying Christian history and the, the theology of the church, I began to be intrigued by a lot of the questions that theologians throughout the Christian church uh, have been interested in. And I wanted to kind of connect how philosophy and theology actually related to one another. And so I came to Wheaton to do my PhD because they offer a very integrative program where philosophy, theology, biblical studies are all in dialogue. And I did my best to try to write a dissertation that was interested in talking about all these things. So doing philosophy, doing theology, and also doing some biblical studies work as well. So the incarnation stuck out to me in particular because on the one hand, it's the crux of the Christian faith, trying to figure out what it means to affirm that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human. And there are a lot of interesting philosophical questions. I suppose when I think about the doctrine of the incarnation as opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity and thinking about which one might be preferable to study for my own interests. The Trinity always is so difficult because you're dealing with very abstract concepts, trying to think about how human language can even refer to the divine being. But it seems like when you're talking about the incarnation, you're talking about a physical person. And so to talk about Jesus Christ, uh, a real human being, is important and seems a bit easier. So in some ways, if you punt on the Trinity stuff, the incarnation is a bit easier to get our minds around, I guess. Yeah, I mean, incarnation does seem more immediate, and I think it's kind of more central and foundational to most Christian traditions as well. So you're teaching at an evangelical school, and you attend an Anglican church. 
And mm -hmm. there's quite a lot of reformed theology in the book. A lot of readers would probably wonder if you are reformed. Yeah, um, I, I like to describe myself as friendly reformed. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for the reformed tradition. I'm Protestant and see the Anglican tradition as one of the reformed traditions. So while I, I'm not explicitly confessionally bound to Westminster or any of the reformed confessions like that, I do think the 39 articles are uh, generally a good way to go about starting with Christian doctrine. And so I'm an Anglican for the reason that it's a very ecumenical way to be Protestant and also the halfway to being Catholic as well. So I, I am an evangelical uh, and I also have desires to see evangelicals be more in dialogue with Catholic Christians and, and the Reformed tradition as well. So this book is about a pretty specific and, at least in my experience, an unusual topic, what theologians call the extra-Calvinisticum. How would you summarize that doctrine so that an average Christian can understand it, and, and why would they think that that's an important topic? So I think there are two claims that we might be able to parse the extra-Calvinisticum out into. The first, I think, is a negative claim. It's the claim about the eternal second person of the Trinity and wanting to say that that person was fully God apart from the incarnation, and that even in the act of the incarnation of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the Word didn't change who he was, give up anything that he had in order to become incarnate, so that when we look at Jesus Christ, we're seeing the very person of the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate. So that's the, the negative claim. It's, it's a claim about what didn't happen when the Son became incarnate. The positive claim, I think, is to talk about specifically omnipresence and to make the claim that Christ is everywhere by knowledge, power, and essence, personally relating to you, to me, to all people. And so there's some kind of relationship of omnipresence between the actual person, Jesus Christ, and all people and Christians in particular. So when does this term extra-Calvinisticum enter into the theological scene, and when does the idea of it enter into the history of Christian theology? Yeah, there was a really important work done back in the 1950s by E. David Willis. He has a book called Calvin's Catholic Christology, and everyone hears the term extra-Calvinisticum and immediately thinks it's something that is a reform doctrine, that is Calvin's invention in particular. And it turns out, as Willis pretty definitively shows, that the concept is something that we can find all the way back as early as Athanasius and Cyril. Some might even try to go as far as to say the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 when he's referring to the pre-existent eternal Lord, has something like the extra-Calvinisticum in mind. But what happens then is that even though we see early on in Christian theology, the Church Fathers, uh, this idea that ends up getting carried on all the way through the Middle Ages in Aquinas and uh, Lombard and others, in the Lutheran and Reformed controversies of the Reformation, the Lutherans came up with this derogatory term for an idea that the Calvinists held to, the idea that during the Incarnation, the Word is not restricted or limited to the flesh of Christ, but continues to uphold the universe and exercise power even outside or extra the flesh. 
And so the Lutherans, in a way to, in some ways, criticize Calvinist teaching, came up with the label extra Calvinisticum, Calvin's extra. And that's the term that stuck with this doctrine. So even though it's made famous by Calvin, it predates him and is something that we can find pretty much through the entire uh, church tradition in Christology. So in a way, this might be just entailed by what they would say back in the, I don't know, the fourth century that in incarnation, the logos, the word isn't changed or doesn't cease to be divine or something like that, right? Yeah, that's that's right. Until you get to some of the Lutheran critique about how we go about talking about God, Luther, of course, had this discrepancy between what he called theologies of the cross and theologies of glory. And in some ways, the theologies of glory, he has in mind our idea of God, and in some ways, the scholastic concept of God as a perfect being. And so there's some worry about saying that this doctrine is just an entailment and maybe something that is entailed by a specific concept of God as uh, greatest conceivable being or whatnot. And so I, I do think that that's, that's right, and that's what a lot of these theologians were wanting to do. And in my work, I try to go a little farther than that and, and develop the positive claims about what it is, not just as an entailment, but trying to show that it's something that we can find in scripture. And I, I, I use uh, the concept of the temple to develop a way that we might think of how this doctrine is something that's more than just an, an entailment of, of some claims about Christ. I have noticed that a lot of uh, contemporary theology, there's a tendency to get bogged down endlessly in sort of methodological discussions about proper procedure. Yeah. <laughs> and right. you're, you're trying to do an end run around that in a sense, like whether or not it is properly deduced from perfect being theology and whether or not perfect being theology is a legitimate procedure. Could we get it from the Bible and could we show that it somehow earns its keep theologically in other ways, even apart from perfect being theology? Yeah, that's exactly right. I go back and forth between theologians and philosophers quite a bit, and where my philosopher friends pretty much all would be content with developing this as an entailment of some basic confessional beliefs or basic Christian beliefs about Christ, the theologians tend to be a bit more skeptical about entailments. And so because I care about the concerns that they have about proper theological method and, and being attentive to those things. I, I wanted to, in some ways, build a bridge between these sometimes divergent disciplines to show that that there's this forgot about doctrine that has a lot to offer our contemporary understandings of some different issues. Yeah, I don't know if they're skeptical about entailments so much as skeptical about entailments that they haven't heard of before. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may be it. But maybe that's human nature. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Gordon lays out some distinctions that analytic theologians have made about how to interpret classical Catholic Christology.
Speaking of analytic theologians, one of the things I enjoyed about the book was your discussion, particularly in the crucial chapter where you defend the coherence of the extra Calvinisticum, your discussion there is informed by a bunch of interesting recent analytic literature on incarnation, and they have mapped out, analytic theologians, some kind of different choices that a person can make in interpreting small c Catholic Christology. So let's talk about some of these distinctions, because I don't think a lot of people outside of analytic theology are aware of these. I would like you to explain these distinctions and then briefly say kind of which direction you think a Christian ought to go. Can we play this game? Yeah, sure. I, I, I want to be clear, though. I think that Christians ought to go in certain directions for consistency's sake, but I do think that all of these options are things that one might affirm well within the bounds of orthodoxy. And so that, I think, is an important discussion to just keep the friendly lines open between people who disagree on these issues. Yeah, that's fair enough. I noticed in a footnote that you um, you accept an approach to the Council of Chalcedon that I've seen in other lots of other authors, which is that it's it kind of doesn't have one interpretation, but it's just a fence designed to guard Christology from certain errors. And so it doesn't yeah. exactly tell you what to think, but that's okay because it doesn't have to do that. That's right. I, this is borrowing from Sarah Coakley, who basically says that what Chalcedon is trying to do is to create, in some ways, a set of fences, playing field, if you will, that there are some things that you can't say when you're saying things about Christ, and there's a whole lot of things you can say. And so I take it that all these distinctions are within those goalposts, trying to be faithful to the witness of Scripture and to, to what we see about the person of Christ, even though they're philosophically important distinctions in different ways. All right, so let's talk about some of these distinctions. The first one is between an abstract understanding of the divine human nature in Christ and a concrete understanding of those natures. What's the difference? I think this goes back to some basic distinctions between Aristotelian and Platonic metaphysics. And of course, there's so much revisionist scholarship on Plato and Aristotle that I am very wary of even using those labels. But generally speaking, I think the distinction is something like when we're talking about the kind of human nature that Christ assumed, so this is specifically about what it is that the human nature that Christ assumed is, is it something that is an abstract universal, that is a set of properties? So like Dale's humanity, James's humanity, someone else's humanity, this thing that we all participate in, an abstract universal, or is it a concrete particular, an, an actual concrete object or substance that is the thing assumed? This is really important because I think that the dominant view, especially in Cyril's Christology, sounds a lot like an abstract nature view, that Christ is assuming human nature, this thing that we all participate in that somehow was fallen in the person of Adam and Christ redeems. But then when we get to the medieval period, there's much more nuanced discussions of metaphysics where in the recovery of Aristotle, there's a different sort of development that wants to talk not about only abstract universals, but actual concrete substances that can be assumed. And so you have composite objects and particular natures that are assumed rather than 
merely an abstract universal. So that I think that is kind of what's going on in this distinction between the abstract and concrete nature. So an abstract nature is a property or a set of properties, like defining properties, basically. And mm-hmm. a nature, a concrete nature would be like uh, an individual entity in some sense, a thing that could have causal powers and even be affected by other beings. That's right. With respect to Christ, it'd be something like a, a body-soul composite or something like that, which, as we'll talk about later, I think, gives rise to some objections about why doesn't a Christology that says the the nature that Christ assumed is a concrete particular, a body and soul, how does that not create a second person, and and uh, which would be the era of Nestorianism? So, yeah, the, the developments in metaphysics in the Middle Ages in recovering Aristotle create challenges and also provide resources, as Richard Cross's work on these issues has shown. The next distinction is threefold, and um, I actually hadn't encountered this one before. This is in some recent discussions about the famous medieval theologian Peter Lombard mm-hmm. from the, what, the 11th century? Yes. So it's distinction between three different models of incarnation, homo assumptus, habitus, and then subsistence, which is nowadays called compositionalism. So can you explain those three approaches to us? Sure. The first view, the homo assumptus view, basically says that the word becomes in the incarnation identical to a human person by assuming a complete human person. Now, the initial reaction to this is, um, if you're familiar with Christian heresies, this sounds a lot like adoptionism. There's a person that the son somehow took up and became identical to in the incarnation, but I think jumping straight to adoptionism for this view is not quite a good idea. In fact, Richard Cross, I believe, has done some work to show that, I can't remember, I think it's Richard of St. Victor, he says, holds something like this view that seems to answer some of the objections to the other views. But anyway, on this model of the incarnation that Lombard delineates, the assumed human nature did not have any existence on its own as a substance that was in addition to the word. Because if there was an additional substance that the word assumed, then this thing would um, entail Nestorianism, as I mentioned earlier, because we'd have... It would be a man. That's right. And so what Lombard describes this view is he says that there was nothing new that came to be in the incarnation the word just becomes identical to a particular human person. The question here then becomes, how is it that we can have the word not changing, remaining immutable, and yet becoming identical to something that it was not? And so, in fact, this is uh, explicitly the reason that Aquinas ends up rejecting this view in the Summa, because he thinks that if we say, the body and soul of Christ are united to the word like mere accidents, then it would be Nestorianism. But he says, if the human nature were united to the word contingently, then it would have its own existence, and it would be an existence in addition to the word, which would be problematic. And so he wants to suggest then that this assumed nature can't qualify as an additional substance and the the view that Lombard's holding wants to say something similar, but that the human nature is something that 
is whatever the word takes on is identical to that particular thing. If there were something in the incarnation that was a new thing in addition to the word, we'd have Nestorianism. And so on the view that Lombard is describing, the human nature that is assumed here, the full complete nature, is not a substance in itself. This means then that the incarnation basically is a relation. The human nature, this homo assumptus view says, is really related to the word, but there's no new real relation to the word, to use uh, Aquinas' terminology there. Oh boy. Okay. So <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, the medieval idea of relations, I think, is kind of foreign to us yeah. nowadays. So they think of it as like an intrinsic property mm -hmm. uh, that's like a vector that points to something else. And so the human nature would have one of those pointing toward the divine nature, but not vice versa. Is that one way to That's right. Yeah, I think that's, that's close to what's coming, what, what the homo assumptus view is getting to here, yeah. I'm not quite sure how I get that there's one view here, though. Um, you described it in terms of the word becoming what it's not. So if it's just a qualitative change, if it just becomes human, then, okay, well, then you might worry if you think the word can't change because it's timeless and unchanging. But right. at, at one point you talked about it becoming something else, like numerically a different thing. I mean, wouldn't that be just obviously impossible because one thing that's not identical to another thing can't become identical to it, arguably. Yeah. So the Logos on this view doesn't assume a pre-existing individual, but in the incarnation, the word assumes, and, and this is, I think, the, the key distinction with this view, does become numerically identical with a human body and soul at the moment of the virginal conception here. So the homo assumptus view does affirm a relation of numerical identity between the assumed complete individual, the, the homo assumptus says, and the person of the word. So there's a, a numerical identity relation there that the other view, the habitus in particular, um, is going to reject. Okay, so hmm, I'm wondering why it's called homo assumptus, because homo means a man. But it sounds like it's assuming something that's not a man, right? It's deliberately not a man. It's it's the components that would normally make a man. Yeah. So this is, I think, part of the challenge in this view is it gets taken a few different ways. So the way Aquinas interprets this view, he's pretty clear that, I think if I recall, he does see something like a, an adoptionism in this view. I can't recall particularly his objection, but it is wanting to make the claim that the man that we see walking around in the Gospels is identical to the Logos. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because in that assumption, whatever happens there is a kind of relation that generates a numerical identity relation. Mm -hmm. That's definitely what a lot of Christians think. I mean, some will call the, the, uh, the unincarnated word, they, they might call that the pre-human Jesus. And so it sounds like it's just numerically the same being as this human person before they were human at, at an earlier time, right? So there's yeah, a numerical right. identity assumed there. There's actually some interesting connections between this view and some of the recent work in physicalist Christology. Those people who would want to, I'm thinking here of 
Trenton Merrick's work of wanting to say that there's no soul that is assumed in the incarnation, that we're, we're just physical entities. You kind of can make sense of the same sort of relation is happening in that model of the incarnation that the immaterial word becomes material human person. And so that's kind of the same thing that's being said in the homo assumptus, though wanting to say that there's a, a body, a soul, substance that is what the word is becoming identical to. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you you just done opened another can of worms that we're not going to go into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah, uh, the re recent physicalist Christology with incarnation yeah. theory. I'm, I'm doing some work on that these days, trying to map on theories of omnipresence onto different models of Christology. In particular, one of the things I say in the book is that it, it seems really difficult to see how something like the homo assumptus model could affirm the extra Calvinisticum, because the extra Calvinisticum seems to entail that the person of the word is not identical to the person of Jesus Christ. Because we have, for instance, like all the places by virtue of omnipresence that the word is, are not places that Christ's physical body is. And so it seems that there can't be an identity relation that exists there, which the homo assumptus wants to hold. And so I'm trying to do some work on whether physicalist Christology can affirm the extra Calvinisticum, and if so, what it would be to affirm it. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a second and different model for understanding the Incarnation. on to the habitus view. Yeah, so the habitus view, the primary thing they're wanting to say here is that there's no new real relation with respect to the, the word to this human nature. And the human nature is, on this view, not a substance in itself, but something much more along the lines of an abstract, universal, uh, a set of properties assumed by the word. And so here the reason, again, is something like if the human nature that is assumed is a substance and the word became really related to a new substance, we'd have either some kind of change or we'd have the word united contingently to a body soul, which would give the word accidents, which is what Aquinas thinks the heresy of Nestorianism was wanting to say. And so on the habitus model, there's a relation that's not a real relation between the word and this abstract nature that is a body and soul. That's an abstract nature that's a body and soul. Right. So this is the big distinction between the subsistence view as Lombard lays it out. And there's some confusion, I think, with recent discussion of the habitus model it's been employed conceptually by several authors. Uh, Brian Leftow and Oliver Crisp both use the term. But I think at least on Oliver Crisp's part, 
he's in some of his earlier work is using it a bit conceptually different than how Lombard lays it out. I think if I recall, Brian Leftow uses the analogy of um, this is kind of like Christ assuming a nature that's like a scuba suit. So he's basically insulated from all of the stuff of the, the his experiences of the world by this particular abstract set of properties. And he's not really related to those things. And no new thing comes into existence when he assumes those. And it's sort of like the scuba suit that can be removed. On this view, the, the incarnation means that there's this human nature that's united to the word as an abstract nature that's not really related to the word in Aquinas's real relation. Is it an abstract particular? No, it's an abstract universal, um, a, a set of, well, so at least with, at least with Lombard, it's, it's an abstract universal. I don't know enough about the development of how this becomes used in later medieval theologians, aside from what Aquinas says about it. Um, but at least on Aquinas's view, well, Aquinas is difficult to pin down which of these he actually holds on to. Mm-hmm. He explicitly rejects this view in the Tertia Pars, but then he also ex- does at some places reject the next view, the subsistence view as well. And so there's a lot of debate about which he actually ends up embracing here. Yeah, that's typical Aquinas. Verbally, it looks pretty simple. And and then you try to figure out what his actual position is. And oh, man, and you've just written <laughs> a right. book the size of Eleanor Stump's book, trying to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, It's kind of blowing my mind, though, this habitus idea, because if the human nature is just an abstract universal, and it's not a property that's had by the word, then I I guess I don't understand what it's doing in the picture. Like, it's not a property of the word, because that would make the word change, right? What's it instantiated in? Nothing? That's exactly Aquinas' critique of this view, is that he says that the body and the soul are just united to the word like accidents, but the word can't have any accidents, and if it were instantiated in the word, then it would be a substance on its own, and so it can't be something that has existence on its own, which is why the subsistence view ends up working a bit better for him. Okay, all right, let's let's move on to that subsistence view then. Okay. So on the subsistence view, the, the nature that is assumed is itself a substance, a concrete particular, usually taken to be a body and soul. And the key distinction here is that in the assumption, in the incarnation, the result of the assumption is a new composite entity. And so what we get here is where the previous version wanted to say that there's nothing, the the a habitus model wants to say there's some kind of relation between the word and this abstract nature, but nothing new comes into existence. This view says the nature that's assumed is a substance, and in the assumption, we now get this new composite entity that is the word and the substance that was assumed. And then the question becomes, how can we have a new thing if we want to say that the word is identical to Jesus Christ. And so the question is, are we maintaining in this the identity relation between the son in eternity and the person of Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, it looks like the answer has to be no. I think I detect this idea in some fifth century people around the time of that council 
where they start talking about, you know, the whole Christ, or at least that seems to be what they have in mind. So it's whatever you get when you combine the eternal logos and this human nature that's assumed in this mysterious hypostatic union. You get this whole, which the whole didn't exist before. So it's it's a new thing coming into existence. And it looks like the word is a proper part of it. And the human nature would be another proper part of it. And then it's united by something. Yeah. So Thomas Flint makes a distinction between what he calls a Model T and a Model A view of compositionalism. And I think one of these views, the Model T view, wants to maintain the identity relation there, whereas the Model A view is clear to reject that identity relation. So let me try to parse out how, if we accept compositionalism, that is that a new substance arises and the question becomes, is that new substance identical to the word or not? The Model T view wants to say that the sun assumes this concrete human nature, body-soul composite, and that nature, as I think you just mentioned, becomes a proper part of the sun. And on this view, the Model T view, I think the language of expansion is the, the language that Flint uses here. The sun expands making those contingent parts, parts of his very being. And so prior to the assumption of the human nature, the sun was a simple being. After the assumption, the sun ends up being composite. But this composite is not a new substance. It's the expansion of the uh, original substance that is the person of the sun. So it's a thing growing. It's a thing gaining a part. It's, it's that type of qualitative change then. That's right. On this view, I think this is the view that Flint attributes to Aquinas. And Aquinas, when he's discussing the subsistence view, he wants to maintain that identity relation above all else. So he's super, super intent on saying that whatever the thing is that results in the incarnation, it's identical to the person of the sun. And so the question is just how can we have, it can't be a contingent thing that the sun has, but how do we get the sun assuming something in time that is not identical to it, and yet the assumption doesn't create anything that is new and different? <laughs> so Aquinas is really, really careful on these views, and I think Flint's delineation of this Model T view versus the other view, the Model A view, is helpful. And I think the Model A view later gets attributed to SCOTUS, because on the Model A view, the, the main difference is that the composite that arises in the assumption when the sun assumes a concrete human nature, this new composite entity on the Model A view is not identical to the previous substance. So the Model A view says we have this new thing, Jesus Christ, that is not identical to the word because it's the word plus a body soul. So the Model T view says the sun expands, takes this substance into its nature without a new thing becoming into existence. And the Model A view says yeah, we actually do have a new substance here that's not identical to the substance of the word, nor identical to the human nature that the word assumes. Isn't the Model T view closed off to someone who believes in divine timelessness? Because it looks like it would be a straightforward case of change. 
if we say that that's the expansion is not a real relation here, I think someone might be able to still affirm divine timelessness and, and get around this. In fact, I think Eleanor Stump wants to talk about these because she holds to something like cons- the the composite view, but still maintain divine divine timelessness. And so she tries to talk about how the eternal son can have temporal parts, I believe. So one can do it. I'm not sure if one can do it consistently, but I, I'm not an expert on uh, divine timelessness by any means. I don't know. It seems to me like at time one, you have the word lacking a part and at time two, it has a new part. So I don't see how you get around that being changed. I could maybe see how you get around there being change on the other one on the medieval way of understanding relations. Mm -hmm. If the composite can come to exist uh, only because the, let's see, the human nature is related to the word, but not vice versa or something. Yeah, I think I share that intuition that it's difficult to make sense about how of how this doesn't entail change. But then you run up to the problem that some people think that if you give up the identity claim that the word is identical to Jesus Christ, you are basically giving up Orthodox Christology. Uh, they say this is something that's entailed by some of the Chalcedonian uh, claims about the very thing that we... Uh, describe these natures to is the word itself. Right. You're talking about a problem for the model A view now. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the one that you, you think is correct, right? Yeah. I tend to, I tend towards the, the model A view because I don't, I don't think you consistently, as I mentioned before, can affirm something like the extra Calvinisticum and maintain that the word is identical to the human person of Jesus. Um, when, if you get all of the theologians in, you know, Athanasius, for instance, he talks about it in terms of creation, and he says that um, the word in becoming incarnate didn't give up being present to all things and upholding all things by his power and, and doing these other sorts of things that clearly are done elsewhere besides the actual location of the person of Jesus walking around. And of course, this is challenging because now we're talking about, you know, the cosmology and the way the world is and how we map these concepts onto pre-modern views of, you know, the four-tiered universe or uh, and heaven being up and whatnot. How we deal with those questions is raised by a lot of these issues as well. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Gordon and I discuss some objections to his preferred way of understanding Chalcedonian Christology. strikes me there might be a couple of tough objections to this type of view. One is what you call, or what maybe uh, Oliver Crisp calls the no person objection, which I'd like to hear uh, your take on that. But I mean, another one would just be, 
the word is supposed to be a person and then isn't Christ supposed to be a person, but it must not be the same person as the word because it's a different thing than the word. Right. Um, and so it looks like you've got two persons running around there and whether or not that counts as Nestorianism, I mean, that just seems like one too many, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Uh, and so, yeah, if you accept the model A view, you're able to talk about a new composite entity, Jesus Christ, that comes into existence. But the no person objection is that it seems that there's no person that the composite is identical to because the composite is not identical to the person of the word because the person of the word takes on an additional substance and a new substance, new composite arises from that assumption. But we also can't say that the person is the assumed nature, because then, as you said, we have person of the word and we have person that is the um, the body soul that was assumed as a substance in the incarnation. And so it seems then that this thing that is Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Christ is not identical to any person. And there are two ways that I think we can get around this, and then I'll talk about one other issue that I think arises. The first is way back, I think it was in the 80s, Alfred Fredoso has an, an essay in Faith and Philosophy. He's delineating Aquinas's views on act and potency and says that it would be improper to say that Jesus Christ is a human person. It turns out that Jesus Christ is a divine person with a human nature or something like that. Um, and so that's one way you can go is just say, well, it, we actually shouldn't say that Jesus Christ is a human person. It's a divine person that has a human nature in addition to the divine nature. But I take it that that won't satisfy a lot of people because it seems like we want, in fact, to say the person walking around is the person that we're referring to when we talk about who we worship, for instance. The other way to get around this is... Brian Leftow, he, he says something like, the nature that was assumed in the incarnation would have, had it not been assumed, instantiated a person. But God has as some kind of uh, essential property, the property of, or natures, I think he says, have the property of being persons unless assumed by a divine person or something like that. And so the reason that we don't have a second person in addition to the person of the word here, is that the human nature is assumed by a word and persons can't have persons as proper parts. So it gets around the Nestorian objection, but it doesn't necessarily answer the no person objection since someone might still say, well, the composite there, this Jesus Christ walking around Nazareth is not a person. <laughs> And, and that's a challenging objection, I think. Right. I mean, there needs to be a real self who is the one who, for instance, died on a cross or was nailed to a cross, but presumably that couldn't be the eternal word. And if the composite isn't a self, then it couldn't be the composite either. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, people like Fredoso and Leftow, I mean, there is an old tradition going back to, I can't quite remember which council, of saying that Christ is, quote, man, but not a man. Yeah. That uh, if you say there is a man there, you've got too many selves. 
too many persons. Um, but you have to say it's man, that man is predicable of it because it has those components right. related to it. Yeah. I, I think that one issue that is hanging right below the surface here that I haven't really seen many people talk about in contemporary analytic discussions is the issue of univocity of person language here. A lot of contemporary analytic theologians are very comfortable just saying that God is a person, or if they're more careful, God is three persons, and make the assumption that when we predicate person of God and person of me or you, that we mean the same thing in the same way. And I think that there might be, when we're trying to talk about the person that's walking around as a composite entity and the person of the word, there might be a way to avoid Nestorianism and the objection that is actually the substance of the Nestorian heresy by saying that we're, we're not talking about person in the same way here. So I pursue that a little bit, and I mentioned that this seems to be something more along the lines of what SCOTUS wants to do, where he seems more comfortable talking about the person of the word and the person of Jesus Christ not being identical, and yet also thinking he avoids Nestorianism. So, uh, and it's kind of odd that usually the person associated with univocity, SCOTUS, seems to have something of an equivocation with respect to person here between the word as a person and the human person that's the composite. So that's something I think that needs to be pursued a little bit more and something that analytic theologians and theologians as such get clear on about what we're meaning when we talk about persons with respect to divine persons and human persons. I think one type of objection that's neglected in a lot of recent analytic work is uh, a real lack of worry about docetism. You don't want your Christology to say that there only appears to be a man here. I mean, isn't it just a straightforward New Testament assertion? Uh, you know, it calls Jesus an anthropos a couple places. And yeah. I mean, he's supposed to be a man everywhere. He has a mother and he does all the things that a man does and he gets killed and so on. And I mean, a unique man to be sure, but definitely a man. And I don't think there's really a hint that that's to be taken in some special sense, like he's really just analogous to a normal man or something. I mean, he's supposed mm -hmm. to be one of us, you know, a second Adam. Adam is supposed to be a man, and he's supposed to be a man. I mean, this composite, though, your view is there's the eternal word, a divine person, and then it unites with a complete human nature, and this results in a new composite. But, I mean, I think your view, as you explain it in the book, is that the human nature is not a man because of the union with the word. Is that mm -hmm. right? You agree with that? That's right. That That would be making use of the... And hypostasis and hypostasis distinction. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I take that. Line. So maybe hypothetically it would be a man if it wasn't united. But anyway, never mind if that's possible or not. It's it's mm -hmm. not actual. So it's it's at no time is it a man. Okay. So well that the human nature then can't be a man, but it looks like the composite won't be a man either, right? Um, why would it be a man just because it has a divine person and then these two components? I mean, I've made an analogy before. If a if a demon could uh, kick my soul out and uh, just inhabit my body and take over my body, I don't think that would make the demon a, uh, a human being. Right. But if it could somehow deactivate my soul, 
yet unite with it and and then and take over the body i still don't think it would be a human being i mean it's just not the right kind of thing it doesn't even have the right kind of origin to be a human so mm. i mean are, are you at all worried that this view could be could have a jesus that's not a real human um no i don't think so um yeah so I, the reality you know we're as I said at the beginning with respect to thinking about being within the realm of, uh, within the boundaries of Chalcedon and, and juggling these different commitments, I think we do have the the three distinctions we already talked about, the abstract concrete nature view, the three views of Lombard, and then the question of the identity of the substance to the word. It's kind of like as you're building a model and trying to fit together these puzzle pieces, not having any that completely without any challenges. And so it's a matter of, I think, trying to figure out where you're comfortable with there being tensions and where you think the tensions are less problematic. And so I know some people think that the identity claim is the thing that you have to affirm. And so they'll follow something more along the lines of the the model T view or, or um, something like the homo assumptus view. But I tend to not to think that that is as big of a problem. And I still think that I can say all the things that Christ was really human in the same way that I am and that he experienced everything that having a body and perhaps a soul, everything that it is to have those things, though in a different way as as God. And so I don't think that it necessarily means that we're going to have a, a docetist Christ Though I, I think that, as you said, that should be an objection that we talk about a bit more because it, it isn't really – it's just assumed that if you affirm this view, you're obviously not a docetist, I guess. But I've, I've not seen anyone actually deal with the objections. And in fact, it turns out that – to go back to the very beginning when we talked about the Lutheran objections to this extra Calvinisticum – this is precisely some of the reasons that the Lutherans were opposed to it, is they thought that if we're going to say anything about the person of Christ, we have to talk about development in the human nature. And they thought that development could only happen if it were human development. And so you get in the Lutheran tradition but from people like Schleiermacher, Isaac Dorner, and even up to Karl Barth in the theological tradition Christologies that are really trying to account for the full humanity in a way that these medieval discussions don't really get into. Do they end up treating the uh, the human nature as basically a human person in all but name? The Lutherans in general? Yeah. Generally, if Reformed Christologies tend to get critiqued of leaning towards Nestorianism, Lutheran Christologies tend to get critiqued of being monophysic, and that they seem in some ways to blur the human and divine natures so that in the incarnation, I think we'll talk later about the communication of attributes, I, I suspect, and they have a version of the communication of attributes which basically says in the assumption of this new nature, because of the words, properties of omniscience, omnipotence, and such other properties, those properties are communicated to the assumed nature. And this is why the Lutherans differ from the Reformed on, for instance, the Eucharist, that omnipresence is 
communicated to the human nature so that the human nature now becomes omnipresent with the word. And so the Lutherans get critiqued a lot more on being on the blurring the distinction between the two natures so that they can account for the actual humanity and development of the person of Jesus and the reformed get critiqued of Nestorianism and that they want to bracket off the word from those human experiences in some way or other. All right. Well, we'll open that can of worms about the communication of idioms next week. Thanks for talking with us, Dr. Gordon. Yes, thank you for having me. This week's thinking music has been the track Mai Tai Beach by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Thank you to Greg in Washington State for his donation through PayPal. Much appreciated. Greg is one of the hundreds of people active in the Facebook group for the Trinity's podcast. Be sure to check us out there and let us know what you think either there or on the blog post for this episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share on social media like Facebook or Twitter. Next week, part two of my conversation with Dr. James R. Gordon, in which he argues that the extra-Calvinisticum is, in a sense, a biblical doctrine. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.